seated. One thing we'd ask is that you fill out the guest registration card located in the pew rack. If you could take that, um, there's a place if you want to receive our weekly newsletter, or if you have a prayer request, we would love to pray for you. Later on in our service, when we take up our offering, you could just drop that in, and that can be your offering this morning. As we continue to worship, uh, this is normally the time where we might stand and shake hands, and you can hear it in my voice right now. I've got a little sinus thing going on. We don't want to like share that. Like, there's a time when sharing is not caring, right? And so. Was mainly. We'll, we'll practice that for the next service. But um, anyway, what we're going to do is we're just going to take a moment to pray together. And as I pray, I ask you to pray as we prepare our hearts for worship. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, God. And Lord, as we gather this morning, Father, we want to put our mind's attention and our heart's affection on you and you alone, God. Lord, as we look at your love for us, as we look at your sacrifice on our behalf, God, would that just well us up with uh, gratitude and worship as we express that to you in this moment. And we thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand again with us and let's sing.
cornerstone it's upon you which we build our church it's upon you on which we build our lives to you the glory be yours forever our hope our every need filling my hope is on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Lord, trust in your name, Lord. Here we go. Christ alone. With the cornerstone. Cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the he is Lord, Lord of all. And darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every Stormy my anger holds within your veil. My anger holds within your
before you just lifting you up and saying praise to you, Lord. Praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Praise him in the morning the tall and lofty tree and praise him in the evening for children
Yes, amen. I'd love to just pray scripture. So let's, I want to just pray Psalm 145, 1 through 7. Pray this with me. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your work to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good, mo <clears throat> Good morning. Good to see you today. I want to share with you that the emphasis of our church in January is really looking outward, turning outward. It culminates in our open house two weeks from today for our connection groups. So the idea here is we want our connection groups to be turned outward, to be thinking about people who are not there, inviting new people. So we want to encourage you to invite people. Hope you've talked about it if you're in a connection group this morning at 830. Not talk about it next week. Make a plan. Uh, assign people to contact folks and invite people to your connection group. Now you see this group, we've got the greatest potential for growth. This is our newest service, of course, and uh, typically at our 830 connection groups, we'll have about 90 people is probably an average. In this worship service, we average about 130 or 40. So there are 50 people or so who are coming to this service who are not in a connection group. We want to draw you in. I would encourage you, if you're in one, to look around and invite anybody in your age group to a connection group. If they're already in one, say, great. That's okay, but invite them. So this is our potential for growth. So the reason we want you to be in a connection group is not just to give you something else to do or some other time to meet, but you need the connections to one another to really thrive as a Christian. You need to be in community. You need some accountability. You need the ministry that will come there. You need the interaction. of If you'll get to know people, it's hard to get to know people in a big group. So we want you to be in a connection group. We want our connection groups to be turned outward, to always be thinking about inviting new people and who needs to be pulled in. That's the whole purpose this month with our open house. Will you get on board and help us to do that? We're praying for that. Thank you for being a part of that effort. I'm sharing a series of sermons, uh, preaching through the book of Galatians. Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches at Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey is the area geographically we're talking about. On his first missionary journey, about 47, 48 A.D., Paul established the churches at Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's told about in Acts 13 and 14. That's the area of Galatia. And then he gets back home to Antioch, and he hears that uh, there's some false teaching going on in those churches that he loved and that he planted there. And so he writes this letter, and this letter is a defense of the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus. The key word is faith. The key concept is that the way you receive the free gift of salvation is by putting your faith in God's only son, Jesus. And that's the only way to be saved. But there were some false teachers that were saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to add some other things to that, some works to that, in order to be saved. And that was not only diluting the gospel, but perverting the gospel. The background for Galatians, um, let me review with you again. If you were here last week, I know you heard this, but I'm reviewing a little bit. Acts 15.1, let me show you this verse. This is where the book of Galatians fits into the chronology of Acts. Last verse of chapter 14, he gets back from his first missionary journey. He's back to Antioch. And then certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were saying for Gentile believers, it was not enough just to believe in Jesus. You also had to become a Jew. The sign of Judaism, like our baptism is a sign of Christianity, circumcision was a sign for male members of Judaism. So saying you had to be circumcised, saying you had to keep the Old Testament law, said you had to follow the regulations of the Old Testament and of Judaism. 
and that was changing the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter of Galatia to defend, how do you get saved? It's only by faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus alone is sufficient to save you. So that's what he's going to defend in this letter. Now, before he defends the content of the gospel, he's got to defend his own credentials as a preacher of this gospel. Because those who were attacking him, we can tell by this letter in Galatia, were not only attacking the content of what he was preaching, but attacking his credentials, saying, don't listen to Paul. He's not a real apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't there when Jesus was in Galilee. He's a Johnny-come-lately. He doesn't. And so something like this they were saying. We just got one side of the conversation. But Paul has to defend his credentials because they're undercutting the gospel. So we're going to look at a long autobiographical section where Paul talks about himself. I'll be reading several verses to you today because it all hangs together. And the point, you might say, well, what does this have to do with me uh, what what's the relation of my life of Paul defending his apostleship well it goes to the reliability of all the New Testament Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament do we believe this book is this reliable is this true if Paul was an apostle maybe not you see today there are those who would downplay the writings of Paul or who take only parts of the New Testament and consider them authoritative. For example, there's a group of Christians called Red Letter Christians. Cuts across denominational lines. Gets its name because in a lot of Bible printings, the words of Jesus are printed in red letters. It may be that way in your Bible. Uh, I've never understood that because I believe it's all inspired and all the same. But So red letter Christians are saying we ought to just focus on the red letters, just the words of Jesus, that Jesus taught us to love people and just focus on that. It sounds really good when you first hear their message, let's focus on Jesus. But what they're really saying when you look at their website or, or read their books is they're saying let's don't believe the rest of the letters of Paul and one of the key things is because the letters of Paul are some of the parts that condemn homosexuality and this group wants to get away from that message and affirm the LGBT community uh, according to their website and so that's why they're wanting to focus only on the letters the red letters so you see even today we're dealing with the exact kind of things is the apostleship of Paul valid is this part of the New Testament on equal par with the red letters the the words of Jesus so you see it's very applicable to things going on today so let's look at this autobiographical section where Paul is forced to defend himself as an apostle of the gospel if you remember we started in Galatians 1 1 the very first thing Paul said Paul an apostle well, this section unfolds all that was said in verse 1. So we're going to share three lines of defense, three arguments that Paul made to defend his apostleship. Number one is Paul's apostleship came by revelation from Jesus. The first thing that Paul is going to say in chapter 1, verse 11 through 24, is that my apostleship didn't come from human origin, Jesus revealed this call to me. Let's look at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't just make this up. Nobody told me this. Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. If you underline in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline the word revelation there. It's the key word, I think, in this section. It is that, that the gospel came by revelation that Jesus revealed this to me. Then Paul tells how that happened. Verse 13, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So before Paul became a Christian, he was very anti-Christian. He thought it was his duty to destroy, to kill Christians, to destroy churches. In verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But then something happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, going to that city to find Christians and arrest them, drag them into prison. Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him and called him. And verse 15 says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb. Isn't that an amazing phrase? God had a plan for Paul before he was ever born. 
Is it possible God had a plan for your life, that he knows you and had some purpose for you before you were ever born? God set me apart from my mother's womb. And here's the second word I would encourage you to underline in this section, and called me. We're going to talk about that. That's an important word. He called him. So Jesus spoke to Paul and called him out of darkness into light to salvation and also called him to be an apostle to the Gentile. Called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. So he's saying here, I didn't get this from other people. When I first met Jesus, nobody else counseled me or whatever. I didn't consult anybody else. Verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. So he went off into the desert. Later I returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So the two people here, Cephas in verse 18, that's Peter. Uh, Peter's name was Simon. And Jesus nicknamed him the rock. And Peter is the Greek word for rock. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. So that this is the, the same as Peter. So he went to see Peter. And then in verse 19, he saw James, the Lord's brother. So James, the disciple, the brother of John, uh, has been killed. You remember early in Acts, he was the first Christian martyr. So now this James is James, the Lord's brother. The brothers of Jesus did not believe in him while he was alive. But after the resurrection, they came to believe. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, is one of the lead pastors at the church at Jerusalem. The amazing grace of God. He can change anybody. He can save anybody. And so James, the Lord's brother. I assure you, verse 20, before God, that what I'm writing to you is no lie. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praised God because of me. His first line of defense is, I didn't make this up. My apostleship didn't come from any human origin. Jesus revealed this to me. Why do we believe the Bible? Because it is re has been revealed to the apostles. The eyewitnesses of Jesus, among whom Paul was one of them, even after the fact, an eyewitness after the resurrection, wrote this. And this book is different, we believe, from every other book. Other books are inspiring. They're great. But this one is inspired. It is the unique book given to us by revelation of God. It records the one true gospel. The second line of defense that Paul is defending his credentials, his apostleship, is Paul's apostleship was affirmed by the leaders of the 12 apostles. So he didn't get it from anybody else, but it was acknowledged or affirmed by them. And that's the second thing he's going to say here is that they have bought into this. They have come on board with me uh, that we're not in opposition. So chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem. So 14 years after he's saved, he does go to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along with me also. So Barnabas is a Jewish Christian. Titus is a Gentile Christian. Something's going to happen on this visit. There are spies who have infiltrated the church, false teachers, and they are say when Titus gets there to Jerusalem, hey, this Gentile you have here with you, if you're really saying he's a Christian, then he must be circumcised uh, and be a Jew. Let me read it to you. Chapter 2, verse 2. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be pers uh, preserved for you. So this was a test case. Uh, is the gospel going to be by faith alone? Titus comes to Jerusalem. Would he be required to be circumcised? And the, the apostles said no. And they received Titus as a brother because he had faith in Jesus. 
And then we go on in chapter 2, verse 6, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So they affirmed him, but they didn't add anything to it. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For as God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, the three lead pastors, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Paul in this section is saying, I didn't get this from humans, but these 12 apostles, these pillars of the church, the inner three, James, Peter, and, and John, they affirmed, they acknowledged God's call to me to go to the Gentiles and preach this gospel. Paul's third line of defense of his apostleship is that Paul's apostleship was asserted in a confrontation with Peter. We read about it beginning in verse 11. When Cephas, remember that's Peter, Aramaic, Cephas, Greek, Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, so he comes to Paul's home base there to this church. This church was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Okay, you get what's happening here? Peter comes to visit this church in Antioch to see Jews and Gentiles both coming to faith in Christ. And they have some kind of meal that they share together. It's probably on Wednesday night at five o'clock it's probably in their gym it's probably four dollars for adults I don't know but somehow they have a meal that they share together as a church and Peter when he came to Antioch he'd come out with his tray and he'd go sit with some of the Gentile Christians and eat with them he had learned that God does not show favoritism and that God accepts all people by faith in him you remember how he learned that you remember in Acts 10 and 11 when Peter had this dream, this vision of a sheet that came down from heaven and it had all of these animals that are forbidden to be eaten according to the Old Testament Levitical food laws and the voice from heaven said, Peter, get up, kill you something and eat it. And Peter said, oh no, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm a good Jew, I would never do that. And he said, what I've declared clean, let no man declare unclean. And through that vision, he was preparing Peter to go to Cornelius' house because God had already at work in this Gentile named Cornelius. Peter saw that. He gets to Cornelius' house. He preaches. He's amazed. They all get saved. And he says, I see now that God does not show favoritism. And he stayed with Cornelius several days and ate with them. So this Jew was now seeing that God loves Gentiles and he's eating in their homes, which that would not have been done. So at Antioch, Peter continued that, that uh, practice. But then some of this group called the Circumcision Party, what a name, came up from, from Jerusalem and they uh, didn't approve of that. And so Peter comes out with his tray now and decides to go sit at the Jewish Christian table. He withdrew fellowship from them. Why? Because of peer pressure. The pressure to conform. Isn't it powerful? And he gave up his convictions because there were other people watching him and he, he wanted to please them. And when you want to please people around you more than you want to please God, that's compromise from peer pressure. And that's so easy to do, isn't it? We want to be accepted. We, we want people to approve of us. But there are times in your life when you have to decide, am I going to be true to my convictions or am I going to give in to peer pressure? And peer pressure just snowballs. You see what happens next? It says in verse 13, the other Jews 
joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And even Barnabas, who had discipled Paul, and now he comes out with his tray and he says, Oh, Peter's over there. I believe I'll go over there and sit with the Jews too. And so Paul asserted his authority as an apostle by publicly rebuking the leader of the twelve. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, sort of a scene at Wednesday night supper here, you know, when Peter, when Paul says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We don't know the result. Paul doesn't tell us. That's not his purpose here. I'm assuming Peter, who, who, the good thing about Peter, he would mess up, but his heart was tender. He would repent. He did it over and over. I'm assuming Peter repented and changed here. But the point that Paul is sharing with us here is I'm a real apostle. I'm having to talk about myself because you are undermining the gospel by denying my apostleship. But I have shown that my apostleship came by revelation from God, not by any human authority, that it was affirmed by the twelve when I took Titus to Jerusalem, and it was asserted even when I had to rebuke the leader of the twelve apostles. Paul is laying the foundation to defend the gospel by faith in Jesus. What does this passage have to do with us? Let me make three applications. Let me ask you to ask yourself three questions this morning. Would you do this? Number one, Ask yourself, do you accept the whole Bible as God's revelation to you through the apostles? That's what this passage is about. Is Paul's word dependable? Is all of the New Testament dependable? And you're going to have to come to a decision about that. Increasingly in our culture, there are those who will undermine or pick away at parts of the Bible or who do not like part of it. Kids, when you go off to college, your your faith is going to be challenged. You're going to have to decide, do I believe that this book is unique? It is true. It is the revelation of God through eyewitness accounts to us. That's going to be a challenge increasingly in our culture. Some of you, you know, you may be, uh, you grow up, some of you are going to be famous someday. Some of you are going to be a guest host on The View and you're going to have to decide, in light of all that pressure around me, am I going to say, yes, I believe Jimmy Kimmel's going to interview you on his show, you know, sometime, and, or Ellen DeGeneres, and uh, some folks that don't, that, do, they gonna, do you really believe what that book says? And you're going to have to decide, do I believe this? Increasingly, I'm saying in your life, there's going to be those times when you're going to have to just say, Do I believe this book is the revelation of God? That's what Paul is asserting here. Will you today say, you know, regardless of what others believe, I've seen the truth and validity, the evidence in my life and in in history for this book, and I accept it. Let me ask you a second question to ask yourself. Will you listen for God's call in your life? We've seen that Paul said, hey, I was called. I was not a Christian. I was called to this. God calls people. There are three ways that the word call is used in the New Testament. Number one, God calls us to salvation. He calls us out of darkness into light. He calls us from sin to follow Him. He calls us to repentance and faith. That's the call to salvation. Number two, God calls some people to a special life of service, a vocational ministry. Number three, God calls to specific ministry assignments within the course of your life. He calls you to do something particular for a season. All three of these are are illustrated in the New Testament in the life of Paul. On the road to Damascus, he was called out of darkness into light. And as a part of that, Paul's is sort of unique. The first two are almost together, and through the words of Ananias that follow, he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So he had a call to salvation, and a call to a lifetime of ministry. Then in Paul's life, we also see the call to specific ministry assignments. In Acts chapter 16, you can read how Paul went back to Galatia on his second missionary journey, visiting these churches again, and he wanted again to go into Bithynia, but it says the Holy Spirit 
prevented him from going to Bithynia and he didn't know what to do and that night he had a vision, a dream and there was a man from Troas, from Greek, from Western Europe here's the invitation to Western Europe come over and help us and Luke writes the next morning we got up and left for Troas concluding that God had called us to go there so within the context of the calling to salvation and to ministry is a specific calling I've experienced all three of these in my life when I was nine years old I felt God call me to salvation. Uh, man, I was the shyest kid in the world. I did not want to get up in front of people. I resisted that. But the call of God was overwhelming to me. The burden of my sin was overwhelming to me. And the call of God was greater. And I responded. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life. When I was 15 years old in high school, there was a stirring in my life that God was calling me to be a, a preacher, a pastor. And he called me to a vocational ministry. He doesn't call everybody in that way, but some he calls in this second way of calling. And the third way that I experienced it is that many times in my life I felt God call me to do something specific or go somewhere or talk to someone or to, or to get engaged in some ministry. I experienced it when God called me here. About a year before I came as pastor here, there was a restlessness in my life. Things were going well in my church. I loved my church, but I just felt like God... For some reason, it was somewhere different. It was the very time that this church had begun to need a pastor and begin to pray. And so the, the call of God came to me to come here. I, God's called me to write a couple of books. I didn't need to do that. I didn't need anything else to do. I only did it because God called me to do that. Now, are any of these three calls coming to you? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God's calling you to salvation. He loves you. And he's calling you to leave darkness and come into his light and be blessed. And maybe God is calling some of you, teenagers, college students, young adults, what are you going to do with your life or how are you going to change the direction of your life? Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary or a pastor or a worship pastor or a children's minister or whatever. And maybe God's calling you to some assignment. There are people in this church who have told me, you know, God called me to work with children. Or God called me to work with students. People in this church who said, you know, for this season of my life, I don't know what all God wants me to do, for this season of my life, God really wants me to be involved in pro-life ministry. There are people in this church who, who have had a, a specific calls, all kinds of ministry. You don't have to have that to be involved. Everybody ought to be in ministry. But God calls people to assignments. That can change. But is he calling you to any assignment? Or do you hear any of these three calls coming to you in your life the third question that I would have you to ask yourself as we apply this passage is there any area of compromise in your life due to the pressure of other people are you caving in to some peer pressure about integrity or honesty in your business about morality in your personal relationships about prejudice or because of other people around you at work is have you like Peter had convictions, but boy, there are some people in your life, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a bunch of people at work, who are causing you to, to compromise those convictions. Would you, would you not have to come to the point of public rebuke like Peter did? Would you repent of that and turn and stand for your convictions? Would you decide today, I'm going to stand for my convictions, whatever other people do. I want to please God more than I want to please anybody else let's stand together I'm gonna to invite you to a time of of uh, commitment would you stand with me we're gonna sing a song and as we sing I'm gonna invite you if God's calling you to salvation you, you experience him in your life right now you know he's he wants to love you and bless you and take you to heaven would you come down one of these aisles and respond to that call? Maybe if he's calling you to ministry, you want to share that with his church, we'd pray for you and rejoice with you. You may not know where that goes, but you say, God's calling me. That's what he wants me to do in my life. If you're, he's calling you to a ministry assignment, you can share that, or it may be where you are. You just need, want to say to God, God, I'm gonna, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll do what you want me to do. Maybe if you're, there's some compromise where you stand, you need to say, God, uh, I'm going to be true to my convictions. I repent. Give me the strength to stand on your word. If God's calling you to a church home, you need to be in a church, we'd welcome you to this church family. You come, however God speaks to your heart as we sing. Change my heart, oh God. 
make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. This is what I pray. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like.